0: You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. This evening, I'll be reading from Romans 7,
1: 7 through 24. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might be sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me.
0: Tonight, leave uh, your Bibles open to that text. Yes, we are going to go through all of those verses, but don't freak out. It's not going to be nearly as long as it might seem. Uh, my name's Trey. If I haven't met you yet, I'm a church planning resident here at Mercy View, and I'm excited to have the privilege of walking through um, this text together with us because I think that it's going to be really helpful for us as we begin to frame some things about the Christian life and our walk with the Lord. A few months ago, I was uh, pulling a pan out of a cabinet in our kitchen uh, because I was going to cook something, and uh, I was in a hurry, and as I pulled the pan, it was a metal pan, and on top of it, I didn't realize, was a glass casserole dish. And I pulled this pan, and the lip of the pan caught the casserole dish, and because I didn't know that that casserole dish was there, and because my floor in my kitchen is tile, that casserole dish no longer exists. It shattered into a million pieces, and uh, it was a little annoying, but I cleaned it up, got it taken care of, everything was safe for the kids to run through their barefoot again, and uh, it went about my day. And a couple months later, I was sweeping in the kitchen for probably the 30th time since this had happened, and as I'm sweeping, all of a sudden, there's a piece of glass from the casserole dish that I swept up into my pile. I had done a really good job of cleaning up the casserole dish, but there was still a piece of glass that had found its way into some crack by uh, the grout of the tile, and I pulled it out. And then a couple weeks later, I did it again. And then like a month ago, I was sweeping the kitchen again, and I made a pass under my fridge like I do every time I sweep. And there was another piece of this casserole dish that just came out of nowhere. Tonight, as we consider the way in which sin works in our lives, I think it's helpful to look at it kind of like this casserole dish. You see, sin, from the moment that we are conceived in our mother's womb, has come crashing into our lives and breaking things into a million pieces, and it makes a mess of everything. There's not been a moment of our life where sin hasn't been causing a mess, but the gospel then comes in, And it cleans things up. And it cleans up well, too. It does a good job. And after a little bit, everything looks clean and looks calm. And then as time goes on, we start to notice that periodic sweeps of the gospel, of God's word, begin to uncover more things that are broken that we didn't realize were still there. And a bit later we find more, and a bit later we find more. And it goes on and on and on. Because sin, like the broken dish, has worked its way so deeply into our hearts that we find it hiding in places that we never would have imagined that it was hiding. And so as we're going to unpack from our text tonight... The more the truth of God's righteousness in His Word sweeps through our hearts, the more places we're going to find that sin is hiding and remains. We're going to see that the law of God, which is good and true and righteous, exposes sin in our hearts it also causes sin to be aroused in us as well we're going to realize that from now until the day we see Jesus face to face there is a fight that we are in against sin yet in the middle of this struggle against indwelling sin the sin that still remains in you and I there's hope There's hope for those who recognize that they're wretched, that they're weary, and that they need something, someone outside of themselves. So I want us to look at how the law of God not only exposes sin in each and every one of us, but how it also arouses sin in our hearts. And so last week we we saw how in Christ we've died to the law. And we've been set free because of our union with Jesus. And in verse 5 of Romans 7, Paul lays down how the law has been at work in each of our hearts. He says this, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And here in verses 7 through 13, the first half of our passage tonight, he expounds on this provoking thought that God's law in giving us a category for sin, in giving us the categories within which to place our sin, it's exposing sin in our hearts. And in doing so, it's causing sin to be stirred up inside of our lives. Look with me at verse 7. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known what sin was. Back in chapter 4, we saw Paul made a statement that on its face is a little bit odd, and we unpacked that a bit then. But he says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Meaning that until we know the law of God, until we see God's standard, his righteousness, we don't know that we're breaking it. Like you can't break something that you don't know is a rule, right? Like you, until we see the law, we don't know that we're breaking the rule. And, and, and our conscience, right, is a good measure It's good good at pressing us in on these faces where we're breaking God's law and, and we feel inside of us there's something wrong, but we don't quite know what it is. But our conscience only gets us so far, right? Because this nature of sin inside of us is also really good at searing our conscience and keeping us from being able to recognize over time that We're walking in sin. We're walking in darkness. In Romans 1, Paul says that our nature, our sin, is suppressing the truth. And so the conscience might do a little bit. Over time, it does less and less. And so here in chapter 7, Paul is trying to show us that all of this juxtaposition of law and faith, it's not an attempt to completely discard God's law or to say that in it, God has made some kind of mistake The law is not sin. It exposes sin. But look at what sin then does if we continue in verse 7. He said, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. You see, the law functions like a flashlight. Or maybe we could attach it to the image of the broken dish. The the law functions like the broom sweeping through our lives. And as it sweeps into the cracks and into the crevices of our hearts, it pulls stuff out that we don't normally see. Like there's things that are hiding there inside of you that you don't normally see. And the gospel and the law, it comes in and it exposes those and it shows us what's there. It brings sin to light. It shows us what God desires from us. And you would think then that we would experience this and the result would be turning from our sin. And maybe for some of us, maybe for most of us, for a time, that's what happens. We see it and we turn from it. However, Paul presses us to see that sin It's more deceitful, it's more crafty, it's more invasive, and it's more ingrained in us than we thought, than we realize. But he isn't saying that he never coveted before he learned that God says in the Ten Commandments not to covet. But when he read the last of the Ten Commandments and he saw that, he could see his sin like never before that instead of being a means to defeat sin in his heart and in his life it actually began to give sin cover sin seizes an opportunity and it produced all kinds of covetousness in him and he goes on for apart from the law sin lies dead I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive in me and I died. I was listening to a podcast this week and uh, one of the guys on there was talking about how he had pulled his old Jeep out of the barn and was driving down the road. And as he's heading down the road, he starts to see smoke come out from under the hood. And he does what any sensible person who sees smoke coming out from under the hood would do and he pulls over. He pulls into an O'Reilly's and as he, he gets out he pops the hood and he wants to see what it is that's going on and he lifts up the hood and all of the sudden what was a small little bit of smoldering smoke burst into flames. It goes everywhere. And there was a There was a rat's nest that had been built inside of his engine. It's sitting on the manifold and it had started to heat up as he was driving. And when he opened the hood and the nest and all that dry and dead stuff that had been built underneath the hood was exposed, and that fire got a bit of oxygen, it just took off. And sin is like a fire. And when it's exposed, when it's brought out into the light, it breathes in the commandment like oxygen, and it flares up in our hearts. Paul says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So if the law isn't sin, like Paul said earlier, but it's holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, we're left wondering the exact same thing that he foresees as an objection to what he's saying, and so he addresses in verse 13. And that's this, did that which is good then bring death to me? If the law is good, if it's righteous, if it's holy Did that which is good bring death to us? And the answer is no. What we see is that sin exposed and aroused by the law actually provides for us a way to see ourselves that's normally concealed. We're able to see because of this that we are far worse than we could have ever imagined. And then look at the second half of verse 13. He said, it was sin producing in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. One commentator said it like this, that sin makes the law its henchman to provoke sin in our hearts. But in doing so, because sin is always going to be self-defeating for the believer, it does something else. Paul says that sin produces death in us through what is good in order that, for a reason, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And so what's he saying? What's what's he getting at? And so let's look at his example from the text for a moment. It was always a sin to covet. Just because Paul didn't know the 10th commandment, just because he hadn't been to Hebrew school yet, he hadn't learned about this commandment, it was still sinful for him to covet. However, when sin seized on that command in him to heap on temptation toward covetousness, it produced more sin and death, but it also revealed to him that this thing that he used to never really realize was sinful is really sinful. In fact, it's become sinful beyond measure, he says. So let's consider that a bit more broadly. Let's consider that maybe for some of us today. listen, it's always been sinful for you to be sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your fiance. But when you come to understand the law of God and his intention for human sexuality and flourishing in sexuality, sin is shown to be sin. And every time that you've given into that base human desire for sexual pleasure and intimacy, outside of the covenant of marriage, it has been sin. But now that you know God's commandment, what was already sin has become sinful beyond measure. Listen, spending the weekend getting plastered with your buddies or getting drunk off that whole bottle of wine because you just had a rough week and you needed to soak in the tub. Listen, that's always been sinful. But when you saw that Jesus says to be sober-minded, when you see that Paul takes drunkenness and he lists it alongside all these other worse sins, sin is shown to be sin and it becomes sinful beyond measure. how about this one? This one gets really close to the vest for me. Screaming obscenities at the guy who most likely accidentally cut you off in traffic has always been sinful. My wife just said amen. But when you come to know that the fruit of the Spirit is opposed to the works of the flesh, and instead of fits of anger... God has called you to gentleness and to patience and to self-control. And listen, sin is shown to be sin. Your road rage—it serves to drive home that your anger—it's sinful beyond measure. And look right here at me for a moment. Pay pay attention to this. I'm talking to those of us who are Christians in the room. Like I'm talking to those of us who would say, we have been bought by the blood of Jesus, that we've been brought from death to life. And yet there's this inconsistency that's fanned into a raging forest fire of sin through co-opting the law, and it's trying to kill us. So what's going on? What do we need to see? What's Paul trying to get at? And I want us to talk about that for a moment before we then take our time and turn our attention to the hope that we have of this being fixed. Look with me at verse 14. And we're gonna read all the way down to verse 20. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold under sin. Where I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. The sections of Romans 7 is probably one of the most contested sections of the entire book. Scholars can't really agree 100% on the details of who the audience is, who it is that Paul is talking to. I read four or five different guys as I was getting ready this week, and they all had some kind of various nuance to what Paul's saying here. You have the guys who take a more philosophical approach, and so they think that when Paul's talking about uh, that the I can't do this, he's not talking about necessarily himself. It's not autobiographical, but instead he's talking about the, the I, the ego. And so they don't really, can't really tell if this this I is a believer or not a believer And then there's those who say Paul is describing his life, but he's describing it before he met Christ, and he's being set free from the law, and that this struggle isn't the Christian struggle, but the struggle of the religious person who's desperately trying to live up to God's standard, and all of those guys are way smarter than me. But I think the most helpful commentator that I read was a guy named F.F. Bruce, and I think he actually frames this in a way that's super helpful, and he shows that it is. It's actually you and I who are believers that Paul is talking to. And he, he mentions how between verses 13 and verse 14, we have this shift from, from the past tense to the present tense and the verbs that are being used. And so he expounds on that. He says, there's this inward tension here, which is absent from the preceding section. There, sin assaulted the speaker by stealth and struck him down. He puts up an agonizing resistance even if he cannot beat back the enemy. There he described what happened to him when he lived in this present age. Here, the age to come has already arrived, although the old age has not yet passed away, and he is caught up in the tension between the two. And then he says this, he's like a person living simultaneously on two planes, eagerly longing to lead a life in keeping with the higher plane but sadly aware of the strength of indwelling sin that keeps on pulling him down to the lower plane. Here in this portion of the passage, we are left with attention. And I think if we pay close attention, we can feel it as we read I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Again, for I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. It's it's tension. And I think as we look at the text, we see Paul is describing the believer's battle with indwelling sin. Like we see this struggle with the already of the fact that Christ has finished his work, that it's done, that he's accomplished it, that there's freedom to be found in him, and the not yet of the fact that it hasn't come in its fullness for us, that there's still pieces of the brokenness that are hiding in the cracks and the crevices, and they've got to be swept out. And so consider what Paul has already said about us that none of us is righteous, that none of us seeks to do good. Yet the person that Paul is talking about here, be it himself or some other believer that he knows, has what no one apart from the work of Christ has, and that is a genuine desire to obey God and to do what is right. They have a hatred for sin, yet they find themselves caught in a struggle that they can't seem to win. And if we let Scripture interpret Scripture, I think what we're going to see is that this theme comes up again. And again, this tension is here again and again. It's here again in Paul. It's here outside of Paul. Consider Galatians 5:17, for "The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh." For these are opposed to each other, to what? To keep you from doing the things you want to do." Or we could look at Colossians 3, the passage that I think best frames this, not merely as a struggle. It's a little wrestling match between you and sin, but it's war. It's a battle. It's war. And so speaking to those of us who are already believers, Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you. And he goes on to address sin head on. And we see the same tension again in 1 John where John says, hey, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin, but... If you do, right, it's tension. It's don't sin, but there's something inside of you that, listen, I know you're gonna sin and I want you to have this encouragement. And so here's the point. Here's what I want us to see tonight. Pay careful attention to this. This is important. The Christian life is one of war against the sin that dwells inside of each of us. From the day that we trust Jesus until the day we see him face to face. Let me say it again. Christian, your life is one of war. War against the sin that dwells inside of you. And it's a war from the day that you trust Jesus until the day that you see him face to face. Listen, you have pieces of sin hiding in you that you don't even know in places of your heart that you don't even know exist. And as you grow in holiness, and as your love for the Lord grows and your desire to honor him with your life, to know the holiness of God, it's gonna sweep through and it's gonna expose those things. And listen, those things are not gonna just idly sit by and say, okay, you caught me. They're gonna fight. Sin is going to put up a fight in you, and you have to fight back. You know what I've learned about myself as the Lord has worked to sanctify me, as he's worked in these moments to make me more like him? It's that when temptation is the strongest, it's always, always, immediately after the Lord has done some kind of serious work in my heart to draw me closer to him. It means that tomorrow morning... It's going to be a harder fight against sin than it was this morning because the Lord's been working this stuff in me this week. So that's a cue for you brothers who walk with me to be on your guard and ask me some questions this week, right? Because temptation is going to come. I saw a tweet yesterday, actually, that summed this up really well. Your sin nature, this is from a guy named Daryl Harrison, It's so utterly relentless, so entirely unyielding that even after you've resisted a temptation, it seeks to convince you that you missed out by trusting God. That's how sin works. That's how deceptive it is. Hey, you believed that Jesus was better? Hey, man, you missed out. You should have went with what your gut was telling you. You should have went there. And he quotes Genesis 4, 7, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. You must master it. Because the closer that we get to Jesus, the more the light shines on the darkness and the more what is earthly in you is going to want to push back. So where are you struggling against sin? Where are you at war against sin in your life? Don't make the mistake of thinking that you're not at war right now because you're not addicted to porn or because you're not struggling with same-sex attraction or because you're not cheating on your wife. Don't think that you're not fighting against sin because you're not dealing with some kind of sexual perversion. I think one of the greatest lies the enemy has told us that the church has bought hook, line, and sinker in our culture is that the only sin worth considering is sexual sin. Like, listen, it's a problem. Listen, we got to root it out. We got to put it to death. But it's not the only thing that we face. And I think the reason that we get so caught up on it It's because we see it. It's everywhere in our culture. And it's this lie that the enemy is telling us so we don't see what else is hiding in our hearts. We don't see what else is there because it doesn't look as bad. Listen, it needs to be brought out into the light and put to death, but so does whatever pet sin you're trying to keep in the corner, whatever thing you're trying to tame. It can't be tamed. Where are you struggling against sin? Are you constantly anxious? Well, Trey, I mean, listen, anxiety, my anxiety is not a sin issue, okay? And why does Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount tell you not to be anxious about your life? What you'll eat, what you'll drink, what your body, what you'll put on, like these basic needs, these things that cause so much anxiety in us. Listen, I'm not, I'm not, I know that there's some of us in the room tonight that our anxiety is the byproduct of things inside of us that we can't control. I get that. I'm not trying to dismiss that. Tonight I'm talking to those of us in the room, myself included, whose anxiety is not a byproduct of things in us that we can't control. It's a byproduct of things in our life that we can't control that we want to hold on to and we want to control. And the gospel has come and it said, you can't control this you can't be God and the sin inside of us that wants to violate that commandment to have no other gods before him listen that sin wants to fight back and wants to say yes you can you can and so we try to and we're anxious and we're worried And Jesus says don't be anxious where are you struggling against sin Are you addicted to your work and to productivity? Listen, this is when the Holy Spirit really started working in me on Friday because I was unusually exhausted. And as I started to think about it, I had been bragging a couple days before about the fact that I can function on four hours of sleep, run like that for weeks on end. And I I mean, I have, I did. I was just exhausted. I was like, why am I exhausted? It's because... It's because sin inside of me wants to tell me that, you know what? God may have needed to rest on the seventh day, but bro, you don't need to do that. Like, forget about Sabbath. Forget about rest. You can run this thing. You can do this. Where are you struggling against sin tonight? We can make our way through the Ten Commandments. We could look at the various lists of sins that are laid out in the New Testament where we see the deeds of the flesh and what we would find is that sin inside of us, it goes far deeper than we care to admit. And our struggle, our struggle against it's more persistent than we realized. If you're here tonight and you're a believer, my guess is that what Paul says next resonates so deeply in your heart and in your soul. You've probably found yourself crying out the same thing that he says here. Look with me at verse 21. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then he cries out. And I think we need to cry out with him, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer to that question is the last thing I want us to see tonight. Here's the hope for the wretched. It's found in Jesus Christ, the righteous. Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So I want to take us back to F.F. Bruce. I mentioned him a moment ago in his commentary because I think he helps us look to the hope found in Jesus in the midst of this tension that we're experiencing as we fight against indwelling sin. He says, Paul knew that Christians in general live in two worlds with the tension that this involves. Temporally, they live in this world as men and women of flesh and blood, and they're subject to the conditions of mortal life. Like all their fellows, they are children of Adam and subject to the law that in Adam all die. Spiritually, however, they have passed from death to life, from the realm of darkness to the kingdom of light, as sharers in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. They have been raised to walk in newness of life, citizens of the new world, members of the new creation, no longer in Adam, but in Christ. And in this last sentence, one day this present order will pass, the new age will be established in glory, and the tension between the two ages will be resolved. You see, the hope that you and I have is found... In Romans 5, 8, the reality that Jesus died for us while we were still in this world, while we were still sinners. And in the reality of what we're going to unpack as we go through the rest of this book, as we get into Romans chapter 8, and we see that for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, for God has done What the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. That's Romans 7. The law is weakened by sin inside of you, but the Spirit of God, the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, he lives in you. So Romans 8 is going to press on. Listen, we are in Christ, the people of God that Ezekiel wrote about. That he described as having our hearts of stone pulled out and replaced with a heart of flesh. So that what? So that we're moved inside of us. Not just to hear the law of God, but to obey it. To walk in newness of life. Believer, we are the ones that Jeremiah said would not just see the law, but God would inscribe it on our hearts so that it flows out from us. And so how does the did not yet give you hope today in the midst of the already? In your day-to-day when sin gets exposed and it gets aroused by what's good and what's righteous, how does being indwelt by the Spirit help you overcome your addiction to porn or your anxious heart or your covetousness or whatever it is in you that indwelling sin is bubbling up to the surface? These things you no longer want to do, that you hate. Here's how. The Spirit turns your eyes to Jesus. He takes your gaze off of yourself and off of the law that you cannot measure up to. And he puts it on Jesus. Get your eyes off of down here and get them up here on Jesus. You see, when we look to Jesus, the one who fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law and imputed to us, gave to us his righteousness. Listen, we're free from not only the curse of sin, but the burden of the law. We don't have to keep it perfectly. There's grace for us. So how do we do that? How do we take our eyes and look to Jesus? It's not simple. It's not just do this. We have to do something, we have to have some things here. We, in order to turn our eyes, we have to turn away. We have to turn away from us. So where do we start, what do we do? What tools have we been given by God to do this? Well, we can start here, we can start with prayer. I think that's a really helpful place to start. Start with prayer. Start with confession, right? Especially every week when we come in here and we have this opportunity to confess our sin. Trey, I don't know how to pray. Do this. Say this. Jesus, I'm here in the middle of this struggle again against sin that's inside of me and it keeps getting exposed and it keeps getting aroused and I don't know what to do. Help me. That's it. That's a prayer. Its your eyes turned off of you onto him. Or we can sing. which I don't know what to sing. Get the set list from tonight. Sing it. Get your eyes on Jesus. What a beautiful name. Run to Jesus. He's waiting for you. His arms are open for you. Blessed assurance. Jesus is yours. That's your story. You can hide the word of God in your heart. Things like Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you, 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 with steadfast love and mercy who satisfies you with good? Listen, notice tonight, we don't fight. We don't wage war with do better, try harder, pull up yourself by your bootstraps. We wage war. We fight against sin with the finished work of Jesus. That's where hope's found. So as we bring this thing to a close, let me ask you tonight what is the sweeping work of the Spirit of God through his word pulled out of the crevices? What is the gospel brought to light? Maybe even this evening that needs to be dragged out to the street corner and be put to death. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. But as you've heard the message and as you looked at the depths of your own heart and your own sinfulness, you don't know why, but it feels like there's this spotlight shining directly on you this evening. Listen, don't slump back into the shadows. Darkness hates the light. It doesn't want to be exposed. And there's this inclination inside of you to shrink back, don't do it. Maybe you've heard what Jesus said in John 3.16, pretty famous verse. If you live in Oklahoma, you've probably heard it. If you watch football, you probably saw it under Tim Tebow's eyes at some point. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But you probably haven't heard John 3.19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Listen, Jesus loved you enough to die for you. Hear that. Believe that. And I know that when your whole life has been darkness, when the light is shown on it, it hurts. Hurts a little bit, maybe hurts a lot. Don't shrink back. Don't love the darkness. Find somebody, find me, find Ryan, find Brad or John. Like, we want to talk with you, we want to pray with you. We want you to see the light and come to Jesus. And the believers here tonight, are you seeking to put sin to death? Yes, you live in the in-between, the world that has not yet come. And so you have to fight against sin. You have sin dwelling inside of you. But listen to me, the spirit of God that dwells inside of you as a believer, that raised Jesus from the dead, it's greater than the spirit of the world. It's greater than your sin. So don't lay down. Don't stop fighting. Put up a fight. Look to Jesus, make war against your flesh by the power of the Spirit. Consider Galatians 5, the Spirit and the flesh pitted against one another. And Paul says, walk by the Spirit so you don't gratify the desires of the flesh. How do we do that? We do that through cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These stand over and against sin, How do you cultivate the fruit of the Spirit? Take your eyes off yourself and you put them on Jesus. You lean into Jesus and you trust him. Let's pray tonight.